Okay, and I've got some questions for you as well as regarding. Oh right. This. Uh, yeah. Okay. Hello and welcome to Roast Tinted Black and White Television with me, Guy Morgan. This is where we look at the golden age of British television, the shows that flickered across the black and white screens of the UK between 1956, the Suez Crisis, and 1974, the three-day week. And, as usual, my co-host is David Newell, who is not down the line, but actually here in the flesh, in person. Absolutely live. <laughs> and we are doing a special at Dave's behest, because he has personal experience of this gentleman. But the first thing I want to do is start off with the quiz, Dave. All right, OK. This is unexpected, this is listeners. I don't know, and, I, and even though I'm live in the same room as Guy, I can't see the answers. I'm just hoping it's not an essay question. Can you name these theme tunes? All right, OK. Isn't that the theme tune to our this show? This one is an open goal. Oh, right. Wait a minute, that's London Weekend Television, I know that bit. That's Thames. What's it, Thames? It's uh, not exactly this year's model, is it? Who's the money, Dave? What? The money. Yeah, not that. Well, uh, when you run out of fingers, use your toes, eh? This must be the Sweeney. I only know that because I've got my CD Shut it. I'm going to take a guess that the clue, the, the, the trail of breadcrumbs I've been left here, that they are um, Ian Hendry related series. Now, Ian Hendry was one of those people that we know, and, and I will ask some questions later on, um, was at the, the forefront of when Police Surgeon morphed into to the Avengers. Um, and so possibly is one of those from... From from that, 
both of those. The first one, yeah. that very jazzy thing, yeah. is Police Surgeon. Um, and that ran for 13 episodes. Yeah. Now, as you know, the story behind Police Surgeon is, for contractual reasons, Julian Bond, who created Police Surgeon, ran into some problems with the expert he was dealing with, who basically seemed to want all the money. All right. And all the credit. If there'd been words to that theme tune, he probably would have wanted to sing it. <laughs> so, Sidney Newman was informed about this ruckus. Mm. And he said, right, we're going to kill it right there. But Ian Hendry yeah. has gone down extremely well with the ladies. Good we demographic need, to have. Yeah, we need a vehicle for Ian Hendry. Um, he played a doctor in this. Why doesn't he play a doctor in this new thing? And they kind of made it up on the hoof and said he's a doctor whose fiance gets killed in the first section of the first mm. episode. And this mysterious figure turns up and helps him avenge his girlfriend's death. Ah, oh, I see what they did there. Um, and what we're we going to call it? Well, the Avengers. Oh, okay, yeah, we'll go with that. And so that next da -da -da -da, mm. uh, bit was Johnny Dankworth's original oh, right, theme for the Avengers. The next one was extremely lively. Uh, yes, now, uh, I know that, uh, you know, other series that he did, or series that he was in for a while, um, he was in Emergency Ward 10, so I don't know whether that... that These are in chronological order. Oh, so right, was, OK. Emergency Ward 10 was before Police Yes, surgery. right, OK. Um, so another big series that he had, and I, it was kind of like a groundbreaking series in terms of location work and kind of setting a, a, a tone for almost like 10 years uh, of drama would have been The Lotus Eaters. So I don't know is... is... Uh, no, that's coming up. Oh! Because... He made an awful lot of guest appearances. He did, yeah. So, but these well, are one episode, one episode, one episode, as they say on IMDb. That's right. But these are series which he basically was the star, and that very jazzy one. Oh right, yeah. Is the informer. Oh right, okay. Which Ridley Scott can be being heard being interviewed about that, and he gets the name wrong. He calls it the insider. Oh. But he actually directed a couple. Yeah. Oh of, right, of okay, episodes. okay. Also because he directed Adam Adamant or whatever mm. it is. But he said that, let's call it The Informer, mm. uh, give it its correct title, uh, was very good. And then the thing that sounds like it's been done on a stylophone. Yes, there is. It kind of almost sounds science fiction-y, doesn't it? It does. Now, did you watch the link that I sent you? I have not had time to do my homework. And right. for that, I apologise and will expect to have to write lines later on. Punishment enough if you watch it. Because <gasps> this is the adventures of Don Quick. And this is this is a sci-fi. This thing. is a sci-fi thing. And its budget is such that it makes Blake 7 look like the Matrix. Mikey, <gasps> oh, that must have been dirt cheap. Unbelievably cheap looking. Oh, right, and okay. actually, it is one of those cases where commercial hour feels like a commercial year basically oh dear um, it could easily have been um, if they'd wrapped it up in about 25 minutes that would have been fine and it would have mm. been much much tighter 
There are only six episodes of it. It's Ian Hendry as Captain Don Quick. Sam Chopanza is oh, played by Ronald Lacey. Uh, and they travel around visiting various planets and causing mayhem uh, by trying to do good works. Oh, no. It's oh, yes. altruistic astronauts. That's the last thing you need. Um, well, Ronald Lacey isn't actually that altruistic, it oh, has right, to be okay. said. Um, Does he have a more mercenary outlook? Yes. Um, and the only episode that survives, I think, I think is the one on YouTube, which is uh, the first one. And... Yes, there's a a lot of mayhem um, and an inflatable shelter build, uh, built out of large balloons and inflatable uh, furniture. Um, and other people walking around unrecognisable in their semi-Aztec costumes. And it's nothing like the Feathered Serpent, because they really did have Aztec costumes. Um, oh, no. <clears throat> Yes, and I do remember uh, one episode of Don Quick, which was basically about a games-playing machine robot where it was used to play poker with or bridge or something like that, but it had been left behind alone on this planet. Oh, Um, a bit like WALL-E. Yeah, a a bit like that, and it actually was quite sad. Basically, it was... Uh, if you can imagine what K9 looked like, but instead of K9's head, there was a TV screen with a human face on it. Aww. And in the end, they have to leave the planet, but they can't take the machine with them because there's a lot of weight. The other thing about this planet is that it is covered with gold. Oh, right. Which Sancho Panza has actually taken some of it on board, which is turns out to be why they can't too heavy yeah too too heavy and so captain don quick throws a lot of this stuff out of the Mm. airlock because he says i will not stand for cupidity on this spacecraft and he said no no captain i've never had a woman on board Uh so there's wordplay like that but he has as don quick goes to sleep in his white or silver welly Ronald Lace's character has a quite large chunk of gold secretly. Um, one thing they have done is they have taught the games playing machine how to play solitaire. Oh, that's that's, that's nice <laughs> in a way. Yes, it is. Yeah. And so, but that is lost, and it's possibly the only recollection. Oh, there you of, go. Yeah, I suppose you know the, the it's, it's, you know one of the things that we have to sometimes look about is is that. A, a person's legacy sometimes you know a lot of the actors that we're looking at you know in the 50s and, and 60s and and 70s is is kind of a great deal of, of perhaps some of their best work it's kind of just lost yeah yeah I wouldn't say this is necessarily Ian Hendry's best work but he is different and we'll come on to what he was like as an actor the Lotus Eaters is the next one oh that, there we go that, so that close kind of very bizarre discordant thing yeah. so that's 1974 I think um, three, four. there's 15 episodes of that there's two series of it it being a kind of anthology series with the same characters on Crete the second series 
is much more kind of thriller spy based mm. and you sort of think oh right I didn't see this coming anyway but the Lotus Eaters is one of those things that's written by the, the same guy who then did the Aphrodite Inheritance in Michael J. Bird yeah yeah um, so there was quite a lot of Eastern Mediterranean location work claimable against tax yeah kind of like loads of bazooki music all oh, right loads of stuff and of course Ian Hendry is paired with Wanda Ventham again again and they worked before they worked in that episode of the gold robbers which yeah. uh, we've both seen the chemistry there works really well they worked a lot together they worked a lot to- i mean i don't think they're in the same scenes but they are both in captain chronos vampire hunter oh yes both in, right. in in that but yeah they 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 did seem to almost be kind of like the spencer tracy and Catherine hepburn of of British TV, you know, if you if you did have have them working on on scenes together or series together, they always seem to kind of like bring a realism and spark to it. Yeah, the very final one, obviously, it's a gift. The first person you see in the Sweeney is Ian Hendry, up to no good, oh. and uh, playing a Cockney geezer villain who's about to stage an armed robbery. Oh. Uh, no good will come of that. No, no. Um, but he did play a whole variety of people, um, and particularly in guest spots. I mean, obviously, in Vendetta for the Saint, mm-hmm. he is the chief aspiring mafioso. He is. He's the he's the head villain. And what's, I suppose, one of his good qualities is that idea of that you you could trust his, his heroism, it's kind of like slightly understated, uh, um, heroism, uh, as well as his nasty villainy, as well, and he seemed to be able to move equally, you know, between the two. Are you aware of Ian Hendry dot com? No, no. Is this? It's his nephew. There you go. Oh, keeping the flame alive, yeah. actually. And there's a there's a lot of links to sending the clouds, the yo yo life of Ian Hendry. Yeah, it's an extraordinary, packed career, given that. He was dead at 53. 53, yeah, yeah. No, kind of like, I mean, I, I must admit, he looked a very old 53. I, ha- <laughs> I was talking to Martha about this on Tuesday, and I, I haven't watched the entire episode, but I did watch a little bit of it because I thought, who's that fat old man that Louis Theroux is interviewing? Um, and it was Pete Doherty. Yes. He looks like he's had a hard life now. Yes. Um, uh, and I know a lot of it is, is probably <clears throat> self-inflicted, um, but he looks ravaged. Yeah. Didn't he share a house with someone in Paris? It was like a real Stella Street setup, <laughs> where there was like a group of, of musicians kind of like sharing a house in, in Paris, and he's going, well, that's never going to end well. The next person that Lou threw... Uh, interviews is Joan Collins. Yay! And you think, well, yes, she's lived a life as a 90. By <laughs> the, the miracles of modern science. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, we were, again, we were, t- we were talking about, um, you know, you forget Joan Collins started really young. Yeah. You know, films in the 50s um, and, you know, had enough nouns to almost like continually kind of like reinvent herself yeah so that when you know she was offered that opportunity to be in in dynasty you know she grabbed hold of it with with both hands you know to say right yes come on i'm gonna i'm gonna do this and 
you did then sort of notice that every episode of Dynasty seemed to end the same. And it was usually her saying, and with that, we'll own 30% of Denver Carrington. <laughs> and then we will kill Blake. And it would freeze frame. Yeah, she, she just realised that, you know, hey, this is a good gig. Stephanie Beecham kind of then hooked on, didn't it, to do the same. Yeah, yeah. So that really sort of revived her career. Yeah. But, but on stage, I mean, they didn't talk about it, but she was on stage with Stephen Burkhoff at one yes, time in yeah. the 70s. Yeah, she did. Uh, um, yeah, she was kind of like a le- legitimate theatre actress. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is the, the interesting thing about that. And her screen roles have tended to be pretty much the same. Mm. I mean, the, you know, the stud and the bitch, which incidentally, <laughs> Ian Hendry is a character called Thrush Feather in one of them. It's like, it's just like, oh, what? It's like, I think it was worth it for the names, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Worth it for the names, all the soundtrack <laughs> albums that you used to be able to get. Um, but, I mean, she, she did a feature film, was it a couple of years ago, with, is it, where she plays a grand dam and they go on the, is it her and Pauline Collins and they sort of go on the run? You know, pensioners sticking it to the man. Oh right. Um, and you know they they go on it, but yeah, she you know she's she's very personable. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very entertaining. She survived being married to Anthony Newley. Uh, yeah. You know all of uh, um, all of that, but that idea to continually sort of kind of like almost like a Madonna of her time, you know, to say, all right, yeah, I'm doing low budget British film. Oh, wait a minute, I can do big bucks American films. Um, I can do a bit of TV, I can do my stage work, I can do this, that and the other. Yes, you've got to hand it to her. It was was a slightly shorter interview, it seemed to me. So whether there was stuff that they decided to edit out, um, I'm not sure. Whether there was stuff that she didn't want to talk about. Mm. It was interesting. The the thing about Louis Theroux, oh, I'll I'll just watch five minutes of this. And then (laughs) there is that sort of grim fascination. Oh, he draws you in. Yeah. Does it very, very, very mm-hmm. well. Um, and I was, there was a, uh, I must admit, a bit of a, you know, come hither title, which was the, it was it the Playboy Bunny Murders, <laughs> which ITV did. And it was, I can't remember what relative of Louis Theroux's it is. Is it Marcel Theroux? It could be his brother. Is it brother or something like? But there's, there was certain certain tropes that you that you recognised. Yeah. From as if as if he'd oh right okay you know my brother's done it like that and that seems to have gone down well so I'll I'll do that, I'll do it that way. Yeah, and we're just talking about TV. You will no mm. doubt fill me in on his film career, mm-hmm. which was in the sixties. It's quite substantial and it shows a huge range. So he was born, what, 1931? Yes, yeah. Um, And broke into TV in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, As you said, Emergency Ward 10. Um, Yes, a good-looking guy. He had hair to start with. Uh, Yes, yeah. He gradually receded. but, But as an actor, Dave, what is it about Ian Hendry that makes him so good on screen? Um, I mean, some people, I mean, the, the, the website you've referred us to, um, Dame Judy Dench says, you know, 
one of the few people I've seen who who were born to be an actor. You know, just that that realism um, which he would bring to it. Um, and during the sixties, that idea of because uh, he got a, a BAFTA nomination for Promising Newcomer for a, a, a film called Live Now, Pay Later, which was kind of like very unusual, looking at um, the payment system of what used to be the Never Never. Yeah, you know, higher purchases. Yes, higher purchases. We might have might have called it. And then what was what was quite interesting, I suppose, is he would be an actor who wouldn't be too scared to do things which other actors may shy away from and also hold his own in those environments. And, and I suppose kind of like a mid-60s one, which would be a good uh, example of that, is Sidney Lumet's film The Hill, where, you know, he's he's got some heavyweight people there. You know, he's got Sean Connery, he's got Roy Kinnear, he's got Harry Andrews. Um, and he's the main antagonist in that. Yeah, and he's he's not scared to be as nasty as he is in that, and he's also not scared of of the dynamic cast he's working with. And as as well as being possibly one of the sweatiest movies you will ever see, <laughs> stark black and white. I think it's Oswald Morris doing the cinematography, um, and. Everything looks really tough and hard and as if they didn't build any sets for it. It's just all like bleached um, walls and very harsh environment. But it's it's fascinating. And the, the fact that when he's on screen, he you know, like I said, he's, he's got some big hitters around him, but he really holds his, his attention. So he didn't mind that, that idea of, well, actually, I'm in really good company. I've got a really good director. Um, yeah, I'll have a go at this. So he didn't mind doing that. So it's a bit like the, the Southern Star, where yeah, he's got George Siegel and there's Ursula Andress and there's Orson Welles, and he knows kind of like he's the villain of the piece. Um, but yeah, I'm along for the ride. I mean, to have that film career, and if you read his stuff, it's say, oh, he went off and did movies, but mm. actually, he was on TV quite a lot. He he worked pretty regularly oh god yeah all the way through up to the late 70s yeah and even beyond into i mean his last appearance was in five episodes of brookside mm-hmm. i think yeah uh, i think it was to be honest he doesn't look particularly well mm-hmm. yeah yeah in that and we might get on to that later so his tv and film careers ran in parallel well, i mean we've spoken before on on this show about you know how sometimes people make that move. You, you know we were talking about Roger Moore, building up, building up. You know he's in Maverick, um, then into kind of like the Saint, kind of like um, Ivanhoe the Alaskan. So he's got that TV pedigree. So then he can kind of like catapult him to to big film stardom. Uh, but Ian Hendry was one of those actors who would kind of like ping pong back and forth from being in stuff. And again. Kind of those those character parts. Um, he's really good in the Internecine or Internecine project, which is uh, you know James Coburn's the the big lead in that. And Ian Hendry has kind of like a, a almost like a wimpish role in it, but he's quite essential to the plot and some of the decisions that character character makes. So he's you know he's able to do that flitting around of you know big buck stuff. And stuff where you think, wow, he's, he's really useful. Because in 
Get Carter, which he picked up a BAFTA nomination for, is not the main villain, but Michael Caine's character views him as the kind of like the main antagonist and not nasty old John Osborne. I remember going to see it with me, um, with our friend Martha, and she says how he does a very soft Scottish accent, but there's a horrible flinty edge to it underneath. And again, you know, some of the scenes involving him are kind of like the most memorable, you know, in the film. We've gone on to his film career. We've come back, to, obviously, to the TV thing. But those early movies, after he did 26 episodes of the... Avengers and there was a strike and I think the way it's described is he took the opportunity to go off and make movies mm -hmm. so you've got is it, this is my street yes yeah then there's the beauty jungle yeah but I live now pay later live now pay later well none of those characters are heroic and in the end they're either quite reptilian or yeah there's 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 an aspect to them we were used to even way back in the 60s you know we were used to that idea if if this actor is the lead character therefore we should be able to to perhaps identify with him and and think all oh, right he's the nice guy because he's the lead actor yeah this is my street children of the damned which was kind of like a sequel to um, yeah. village of the damned you know he's in repulsion yeah uh, you know, kind of like one of Roman Polanski's Love Him or Loathe Him, kind of early British thrillers. Um, like you said, you, you would have you would have those. Plus, you know, he would be doing, you know, Danger Man, who's an episode of that. He would be uh, one of those people. And I kind of hope that it might still be available out there because he did Jack and Ori. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, be, that'd be such a... He's one of those actors where you just think, oh, quite, is it going to be quite menacing, the story that he's well, I mean, going this, to tell us? I mean, the strange thing about him, and I think we're, now is the time to come on to what he did on screen as an actor, because if you actually look at him, you sort of think, what is he doing? Is, is he actually just doing the lines are we projecting onto him mm -hmm. but he's doing a lot more <clears throat> because it seems to me that when he's dr keel in mm -hmm. the avengers he's mr nice guy but occasionally when he's threatening people with a hypodermic or something because they're up to no good and he needs vital information mm. Now, look, this is vintage stuff, Deacon. Anything you could buy on the open market would be morning dew compared to this. Now, talk. I normally be against every instinct in me to do this, even to a pig like you, but tonight I've seen how your goon here spends his evenings. Now, talk. You can see that he's quite enraged. But he has the capacity for stillness. He doesn't, he doesn't fidget. And actually, a lot of the time, when I've been looking at him thinking, well, he's being heroic or he's being the sad loser mm -hmm. which he played several times his shoulders droop his body language um changes he kind of looks defeated um there's a scene in the lotus eaters where wonder ventham it must be the second series where she sort of looks at him and says self-pity and he's just sort of slumped sitting on the bed um and she just lets rip at him and he could do that really well in that episode of the gold rubbers for yeah. example that we saw where there's an awful 
lot of stuff where he doesn't actually use a lot of lines. He's he's one of those actors. He's not afraid of sitting down because mm. sometimes you get actors who will will just feel, oh yeah, I need to. There's a dynamism to to this character. I need to. I need to be moving around and this, and I need to be talking and I need to be do, doing this. But he is one of those. I'm not frightened to sit down. Yeah, sit down and 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 sometimes not say much. You know, and 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 it's not as if he's letting everyone else do the heavy lifting. Uh, he's doing a lot, still doing an awful lot of the work, but it's it's that it's that stillness yes. that sort of resonates. And the thing that does a lot of the work is his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the fact that he can look benign, mm-hmm. for example, as in police surgeon or um, as Doctor Kill in the Avengers, and hopefully Jack and Ori. And hope Jack and Ori. But also, he can look defeated. Mm-hmm. Um, he can look steely, menacing. Yeah. And this is a movie, but his uh, cameo in Captain Kronos. Oh, Fire right, Hunter, yes, yeah, where well, he's the, he's the um, kind the, of like a mercenary character, isn't he? Yes, yeah. the swordsman. Yeah. But there's a sort of sense of arrogance. Mm. It is the way he stands, but it's also to do with the fact that his expression in the same... You know, he doesn't actually move his face muscles that much. It's it's all in the eyes. And obviously he can do accents, yeah. as we said. So it's sort of fascinating about how someone has, as Judy Dench says, mm. you know, just that gift. Um, I mean, if you look at um, an early 70s film called The Mackenzie Break directed by Lamont Johnson and I remember first seeing it on TV probably in the late 70s and it was one of those ones where he, it was a little bit kind of like twisted round because it's set in Scotland a prisoner of war camp and there are some German submariners being held there and Ian Hendry is in charge of the, the facility uh, and Brian Keith is an intelligence officer, an American intelligence officer who wants to know more about what the submariners know. Um, but the Germans are planning a break, hence the title, the Mackenzie Break. And what's really interesting is, again, it's kind of like filling in the blanks, is, is Ian Hendry as an officer who's out of his depth because he doesn't know how to subvert the the Germans it's also apparent that maybe this isn't how he wanted the war to go for himself to be doing this but there's also that little bit you you see it every once in a while that maybe he's grateful he's doing it because he's not in the front line and he manages to put all that into it yeah yeah. all all that and it's a cracking film if you get a chance you know if you get a chance to see it and a really unexpected ending but uh, again, you know, he's he's not scared of, you know, doing that kind of role. I mean, yeah, so I suppose, I, I think about the same time, a couple of years later, there's one of those compare and contrast elements. He's in a thriller called The Jerusalem File. And you have to say it like that. Um, and uh, I think Donald Pleasance is in it as well. Um, and Donald Pleasance was one of those actors who was very crafty, at business 
He would be very, very crafty at business and would do lots of things involving eating and drinking, lighting cigarettes, playing with matches, uh, um, using loads of props because he knew that that would pay hell with continuity. And it's, oh, we'll just have to leave him in this shot because he's always oh, eating eggs. <laughs> Donald Pleasant just realised it's going to give me more, more screen time. Whereas the exact opposite is Ian Hendry. And you, you, the example you gave before is that closing scene from that episode of the gold robbers where it's just two british actors sat in chairs yeah and actually peter vaughan seems to think oh right this is it's different <laughs> well not only this is different but this is an opportunity to do something which you are generally not asked to do and mm -hmm. because partly it's the script for peter vaughan in a large number of the episodes mm. of The Gold Robbers, isn't that great? I'll do a review of The Gold Robbers once it's finished. <laughs> He's reading run. off a lot of pieces of paper that are handed to him. Yes, and, and being actually, I will refer to this a bit, a bit more, uh, dismissing a lot of things which then yes. turn out to be clues. <laughs> but he's given the opportunity. It's almost like, so, oh, I'm with Ian Hendry. Let's go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Yeah, better, better up my game. Yeah, but they're not actually doing what um i'm not saying american actors would automatically do that but you you get a sense that some people if they're in a big scene with someone of equal or mm -hmm. heavier weight that they raise their game to 11 yeah but in this final scene in the gold robbers episode you have ian hendry as the pilot who flew the gold away from the, the robbery whose girlfriend, Wanda Ventham, has left him because of his involvement in that. His entire dream of retirement with her has fallen apart. It's one of those where he's essentially lost his soul almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not worked out for him. Uh, and Peter Vaughan hasn't got the proof, but he knows it's him, and he's just sitting there putting pressure on and there's a lot of silence but just the way it's shot the fact that they look at each other they share a drink in this hotel that Ian Hendry's character has bought and is now no longer viable because his girlfriend's gone off and you just get the sense of that inevitability of Peter Vaughan's character because Peter Vaughan was also very good at just being on screen. Look at how menacing he is as Grati in, in Porridge. All you have to do is sit down in a chair with a stuffed cat. Yes. And, as we said before, the man with the most sinister smile in <laughs> television history. I've talked before about that stint he did as Long John Silver mm. in Treasure Island, which was about, I think, the year before The Gold Robbers. And he was incredibly menacing in that. Again, as I said before, junior points of view <laughs> wrote in and complained that he wasn't tearing up the furniture. But actually, they pointed out that Robert Louis Stevenson described him exactly like that. There you go. And so if you get Peter Vaughan and Ian Hendry in that scene, it's what, something like two minutes mm -hmm. yeah, with only about a couple of lines of, of dialogue. And then Peter Vaughan finally says... I'll get that pilot. 
and then it finishes and you don't see Ian Hendry again. It's yeah, it's not in it's only in the one episode, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Though to be fair, IMDB is not always right. Oh because it implies that Nicholas Ball is only in for one episode and he does make an is appearance. Is that a lie? Is that is that is that a fib? It's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll accept it as that. <laughs> yes. It's a yes, unfortunate error that probably needs to be corrected, so you you've heard it here. But you met Ian Hendry, didn't you? Yes, when I was at in 83, when I went down to the London Academy of Dramaticness, um, which was um, the new College of Speech and Drama, now part of Middlesex, then became subsumed into Middlesex Poly, now Middlesex University, uh, which was on kind of like the Golders Green, Hampstead Hill border. Um, there used to be a pub called the Hare and Hounds, regrettably no longer there, it's a block of flats. Uh, and it was our local, um, only because we were too lazy to walk to the Bull and Bush, which was actually next door, but the, the Hare and Hounds was, was nearer. Um, and, you know, been there a couple of weeks and you noticed that, wait a minute, that looks like someone I should recognise. I remember talking to my friend David Zaman. I said, is that? And they said, yeah, it is. It's, it's Ian Hendry. And he used to be kind of like a regular drinker in there. So this is, um, you know, September, October, November. 1983 so yeah he'd always be in there and he'd be quite open you know to to having a chat having a bit of a natter you know I remember him talking to to one of my colleagues about one of the things he'd, he'd always like to have a crack at was and I suppose you know this is what everyone actor wants to have a crack at to do King Lear and going back to you know one of your first comments you realize but crikey you know you're only in your early 50s but he looked you know he looked a lot older and you know, that's a combination of kind of like ill health and drink and, and, and fags. Uh, so you would see him on a regular basis and then very regrettably passed away the following Christmas in 1884. 80, but yeah, he was a, he, you know, he was a very amiable um, guy. And I think he quite liked the idea that there was a drama college mm. kind of just opposite and that there'd sometimes be kind of us, us drama students in there. Did he give like people advice? Him. Yeah, he did. You know, he, uh, I remember him talking to um, my colleague Renata about kind of like what what roles you know she might have been good at, and yeah, he was he was you know if he wasn't with there with you know friends or if he was just there having a you know a couple of pints on his own, he he would always be quite approachable, which was quite quite nice. And then my other connection is that his I think his middle wife was the uh, actress Janet Munro. And Janet Munro's dad, Alex Munro, who was a Scottish entertainer, uh, used to uh, have a theatre residence uh, in Llandidno, my hometown, and it used to be Happy Valley, which was like an open-air theatre, which always conjured up the phrase, which still make myself and my brother laugh, um, where it would be If Wet Town Hall, uh, so if you, you had uh, um, outdoor adventures, and Alex Munro, like I said, his daughter was, was Janet Munro, who was married to, to Ian Hendry. Um, and, I mean, I'd love <coughs> to think that he may have come to Clandidno, may meet, meet the in-laws. Um, Alex Munro, some of you may remember for being in Britain's most successful box office film trilogy ever um, from the 70s, which was, of course, um, On the Buses. And he was in Holiday on the Buses, which was filmed on location at huge expense at Pontins in Prestatyn, which was just down the road. So hence he was able to 
to have a little part in that. So yeah, I would like to think that that maybe Ian Hendry might have come up to Slandidno um, and see, you know, father-in-law doing his, his Scottish entertainment shtick. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he was always, he was always, like you said, one of those actors where it's either it's either a film that you you suddenly notice him in, or like you said, it's it's like a TV series. I mean, you can see quite a lot of his early '60s films on Talking Pictures TV. Yes, and, yeah. and they come round, and if they were in French, they would be classics. Oh God, yeah. I mean, if you look, like you said, like The Beauty Jungle, which is really hard-hearted. Because even at the time, you know, this idea of women being portrayed as worthy only because of the way they look rather than because what they might think or do is quite a refreshing approach. But, yeah, it's quite a downer. Yeah. Well, I mean, Live Now, Pay Later. Yeah, that's a downer. Yeah. I mean, I I remember because of the sort of five-year rule, and it used to be that films did not appear on television Mm -hmm. until about five years or longer after they'd been released. I remember being... At boarding school, um, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. <laughs> and we were watching a film. I think we only had a black and white television uh, uh, in, but laughingly passed for the common room. Um, <laughs> it was like Coldix, but with black and white television. <laughs> and we were watching this, and there's a scene where somebody, and it's Ian Hendry, is driving a car, doesn't bother to brake, and rear ends another car just as a means of slowing down and parking and you know obviously that caused much hilarity but it is part of that sort of defeated character where Mm -hmm. somebody who is probably not great at planning their own lives and just basically living from Mm. hand to mouth really as an anti-hero if he'd been french yeah, that would have been yeah. perfectly fine. Yeah, um, and he would be much more remembered and honoured. Yeah, there's all, like I said, I mean, well, I suppose Get Carter is one people might remember, but there's all, like you said, all those little bits. I mean, he's got that uncredited bit at the beginning of Damien Omen 2, which is sufficiently scary at the beginning. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he, he would be kind of like a reassuring presence, you know, where you just think, all right, I'm in for a bit of a treat. Um but, Guy, I have got a question for you. I did say okay. that I had some prepared okay. uh, um, questions. And we sometimes speculate, or there are speculations, about kind of like alternative realities. I suppose one of the big ones is the Smokey and the Bandit um, uh, alternative <laughs> reality where Star Wars never came out in 1977. So the next biggest box office hit that year was Smokey and the Bandit with Burt Reynolds. And that idea of... If 40 years on, 50 years on, um, we are still kind of living through that Smokey and the Bandit-influenced cultural world. Yes, um, well, would actually there be Smokey and the Bandit conventions and people? Yeah, I'd like to think, yeah, the, the, there would be, you know, those, you know, Jerry Reed albums would be hugely popular. Um, you know, people would be uh, kind of like having, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds moustaches maybe there'd be a bigger revival of CB radio all of those kinds of things but if you imagine kind of like that cultural infestation thanks to um, Smokey and the Bandit good buddy Uh, (laughs) but no the question is is so alternative reality 
is I know you mentioned earlier about how the Avengers sort of like came about and he was, you know, in those opening episodes. Do you think that those episodes with Ian Hendry were needed to springboard to become John Steed, you know, Mrs. Peel kind of series that people know and love and, and cherish? Or do you think if he'd have stayed in it, then it, it might have carried on being a more serious crime drama. Well, interestingly enough, I have a clip from an interview. <gasps> Those of you who will have bought the single episode that was recovered of the Ian Hendry days of the Avengers Tunnel of Fear, well, I've had this as a DVD extra, but it's also available online, so you can watch it. It was on Ulster television I think okay. where Ian Hendry is basically talking about why he left the Avengers Ian most people here in Ulster I think uh, remember you particularly for your part as Dr David Keel in the Avengers really? yes did you enjoy this part particularly you didn't seem to get a lot of sly humour and so forth in it with Patrick McNee yes I enjoyed it very much um we, we were in right from the ground floor on that part, and uh, Pat and I really created the characters and built them up and uh, our relationship together. Yes. And uh, we, we enjoyed it very much. And uh, after 30 weeks of playing this guy, I'd had quite enough of playing him. Yes. And I enjoyed it while I was doing it. Do you, is it a bad thing for an actor, I mean, uh, to continue in a typed part like well, this? Well, this is a mute point today. I think, basically, um, I, I think professionally, basically, it is a bad thing. But quite apart from that, I'm in, in the business um, to play different people. That's the joy I get out of the business. And uh, after 30 episodes of one character, I've had enough. Well, there's my answer. Yeah. He's someone who doesn't like playing the same thing over and over again so that's because he wants to play different characters and so I think you could argue that he would never have stayed long term Patrick McNee has been kind of brought out of acting retirement because he's been a producer of a documentary series about the life of um, Lord Louis Mountbatten all right okay and he's quite enjoying that, and is only coaxed back in front of the camera at about three times the salary he's getting as a producer. Well, it was originally about a doctor played by Ian Henry, and he lost his uh, his uh, fiance and at some in a jewelry store or something. So he had to avenge this awful thing, and I was some sort of strange, shadowy creature. I think a lot of it was influenced not by the films, because they hadn't even started the James Bond books. The writers were very considerable writers anyway. Ian Hendry treated them as hacks, which was a brilliant idea because it stirred them up. It made them furious. So everybody came in with their creative juices, very highly developed, and he would sit down. I once saw him take a script and tear the whole lot out and start writing it from page one. We only had 10 days rehearsal. Ian Hendry was supreme. We were what's known as, I think now they call it, drinking buddies, which means that you have a bottle of scotch and you halve it. And uh, it was so pleasant because one saw the world through a whiskey haze and we used occasionally to sit down and see these episodes, they were kinescopes after, and we thought, I don't believe it. The music by Donnie Dankworth is wonderful. That was supreme, it always was. 
But after, you know, we had a few Scottish, uh, Scottish um, Scotch whiskies each, we felt a lot better about the shows and thought they were rather good. And then when you look at the credits of the Avengers, they're both in kind of Clouseau-like belted mm. trench coat Max. And Sidney Newman apparently had a bit of a go at Patrick McNee because he didn't feel that he was sufficiently distinctive enough. Okay. So Patrick McNee's a bit put out by this, goes away and has a think, thinks about his dad, who was a racehorse trainer, and always had a flower in his buttonhole, bowler hats, velvet collar, Edwardian coats. So he adopts all that, walks onto the set, and Ian Hendry just takes one look at him and bursts out laughing. <laughs> what is that? And so that's the beginning, because Steed and the bowler, obviously is the main image that we think of with the Avengers. If he's wearing rather battered trilbies mm. in the early days, it gets more and more sophisticated, and certainly when Honor Blackman turns mm. up, and that's the thing, everybody thinks, oh, Mrs. Peel, but actually Honor Blackman, who is kind of Avengers royalty, mm. she's the one who is incredibly intelligent, knows how to fight, they get her into leather. Mm. And you can always tell, so, oh, she's wearing a dress, she's going to be sophisticated, mm. apart from the occasional gun that might be in a garter. But when she turns up in leather, you say, oh, yeah, someone's got to cop it, because she learnt how to do self-defence. Hence the book. Hence <laughs> the book, which you spotted in <laughs> Otley, wasn't it? Otley, yes, yeah. Uh, and I made the pilgrimage over to Otley, <laughs> To get hold of it, I'm now the proud possessor of Honor Blackman's book of self-defence. And there's a couple of pictures of it on my phone, actually. There you go. In her honour. But the dynamic between that obviously changed, rather than it being two crime-fighting buddies and this rather mysterious character. Because Steed evolves as the series Mm. evolves. So he's really quite... A thuggish character, um, because who's kind of graduated out of the war. Someone who's quite prepared to get his hands dirty mm. and is quite ruthless. Kind of carries over a bit into Mrs. Gallen, even into the first black and white Diana Rigg mm. episodes, where um, he is not all uh, charm and not necessarily to be trusted, and that evolves. Yes, yes, I suppose because if you look at the, I suppose, the genesis of the Avengers, and we've spoken, again, on this very programme, about how sometimes, you know, if a star, you know, drops out or a star becomes too big, you know, and they can't have that that person on there, or the format changes, you know, goes from half an hour to an hour or something like that. You know, you spoke about kind of like how um, Danger Man, you know, did did that. But this, with the Avengers, it was quite quite a radical change from what was the original starting format to to kind of like the, I suppose, the, the colour episodes that we, most people, remember. It's because I think it has a man and a woman uh, as leading characters. Consequently, you've got the conflict between the two, and I don't think there's another television series which actually has a man and a woman in equal parts as the central theme to it. And uh, I think it is great fun, particularly because the woman is a very modern-thinking woman. She's a reflection 
I think, of what women would like to think themselves to be in this modern age. Not career women, but women who don't just stay at the sink and just wash up and help and cook, but go out and think for themselves. And then she's put against a very old-fashioned man who thinks, as I do, that everything in the Edwardian age was the way to live. So you get the conflict now where women are very much a dominant feature of life and they don't like to be just left waiting two paces behind. Yes. Anyway, going back to Ian Hendry, a career that flashed across the heavens, mm. but there was an awful lot in it. A short life, sadly cut short because of um, lifestyle, mm. I think. Yeah, it's, lifestyle it's choices, yeah. But you have very fond memories of him personally. Yeah, I suppose that was the first, you know, star I'd met. I mean, up until that point, I was talking to my friend Pete last night, when it, uh, yesterday I was over at Wakefield talking about, you know, getting people's... Uh, um, autographs. I think prior to that, um, the only actor's autograph I, I had, um, because I was a youngster at the time, and mum, dad, and my brother thought um, the actor won't chastise a small child rather than like if an adult wants to do it, and I was propelled forward. And I got Charles Hawtrey's autograph because oh, right. uh, Charles Hawtrey was in Panto at the Arcadia Theatre in Llandudno. So it's a case of like, oh, wow, look at that. Look who that is. Right. And he was actually fairly receptive. He was to the fairly idea. approachable. I still got it somewhere. Carry on, Charles Hawtrey, It says, "Thank you." Yes. Anyway, that concludes our Ian Hendry deep dive. special. <laughs> uh, yes, a really deep dive into uh, the career of Ian Hendry, and thank you for listening to this episode of Rose Tinted Black and White Television with me, Guy Morgan. And my co-host, David Newell. Uh, this is great because I've travelled up to Guy's uh, um, house and apparently I can claim expenses. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. I thank you. <laughs>